Our reading tonight can be found on page 56 of the Church Bibles. It's Genesis chapter 49, starting at verse 29, and reading through to the end of chapter 50. So Genesis chapter 49, verse 29, the death of Jacob. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Malachpah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mitzraim. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So he sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry up my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thank you, Jeff. Um, evening, everybody. Um, if you uh, heard me uh, preach a few weeks ago on Ruth, then, then at the beginning of Ruth, I was giving a little uh, recap uh, as to where the, the story had been, the sort of the, the previously on. Uh, and now we get to the very end of the Joseph story. Uh, and as we get to the end of the story, it's always just uh, helpful to have in the back of our minds all that, that's gone before. You know, Joseph and his, uh, his fine technicolored rope. Uh, being sold into to Egyptian slavery, finding his way uh, into Potiphar's house, uh, being uh, accused of something that he didn't do, being sent to prison, uh, meeting the, the cupbearer and the baker, interpreting the dreams, being forgotten by the cupbearer, being remi- remembered by the cupbearer a few years later, coming to see Pharaoh, uh, interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, being placed as the, the second highest in the land, uh, having a plan to keep uh, people safe, meeting his brothers, uh, revealing himself to his brothers, bringing his father into the lands, uh, and just all that that happens. But actually, if we're doing it properly, uh, we probably ought not to start with Joseph, but go all the way back to the the beginning of Genesis. Uh, particularly, I suppose, being of Abraham and just seeing how uh, this story is growing and growing and growing. Uh, and so that when we get to this particular story, uh, we see the death of Jacob. Uh, then we see that the death of Joseph. And we get uh, to that last verse, verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. It's a, it feels like a, a bit like one of those movies where you know the sequel's coming. So, you know, you might, if you're of an age like me, you might know this one, Empire Strikes Back. You, you know, they're sitting there looking as the, the Millennium Falcon goes off and you know Return of the Jedi's coming. Or, or maybe you're an Avengers kind of fan, Avengers Infinity War. Uh, you know, when he clicks and half the people disappear. Or you know there's another film coming. Well, we know here that actually this is the end of the book, but it's nowhere near the end of the story. There's more to come. But for tonight, we're just looking at this little bit here, this little chapter, literally and figuratively, in this story. So let's pray uh, as we begin. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's good. Uh, We thank you for all the things that we've seen so far over these weeks. 
we thank you, Lord, for the way it just helps us to see a bigger view of, who, of what you're doing. But we pray tonight as we come to look at these words that you may help us not simply to gain understanding as to what they mean and what they mean for Joseph, but actually how they help us to know you and what they mean for our lives today. Amen. Well, if you were here um, uh, last week, you remember that, that Phil was preaching and uh, he was, uh, you can glance back there and see on page uh, 56 of your Bibles, just the, the way that Jacob was blessing uh, each of his children. It was blessing and blessing and blessing them, blessing them. And this was kind of the, the last act uh, that he was doing. Uh, and now Jacob is, is ready to give his, uh, his final instructions Uh, verses 29 to 31. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave of the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the the field of Machapelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham brought uh, along the field as a burial place for Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were brought from the Hittites. Uh, did you just hear that, that, that word? It kept saying, the field that was brought. Abraham brought this field. Uh, why? Uh, well, he's brought it in the land that God promised him. But at the point, obviously, he didn't own the land. It, it wasn't their land. We don't get to that bit until we get to Joshua. But rather, Abraham trusted in the Lord's promise. Abraham was told by God, you'll have this land. So he bought this field so that there would be a place for his family. Abraham believed God. Isaac, his son, was placed in that tomb. He believed God. Uh, Jacob buried Leah there. He believed God. Now, it did actually strike me a little bit funny as to why Leah's buried there, and not Rachel, or or Leah and Rachel. Now, we know that Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, was uh, died during childbirth, uh, Genesis 35, 18, that uh, she was buried near Bethlehem, 48, 7. And I guess that the likely reason is that actually it would have been pretty difficult to, to get Rachel to the tomb. It just would have been hard to, to move everybody and that the body wouldn't have been embalmed. That, that perhaps is the most likely reason. But it is interesting, isn't it, that the less favoured one is the one who ends up with greater honour. And indeed, Leah is the, the mother of Judah. The one who, if you remember last week, is the one who inherits the blessing that goes down and goes through. But anyway, back uh, to our story. After saying all this, uh, verse 33, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he he drew up his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Uh, Jacob dies, and he's embalmed. That's not an Israelite sort of thing, but it's an Egyptian thing. But it does uh, help, uh, because it did preserve his body. Uh, And Joseph goes to to ask uh, does what his father asked him to do. Uh, he goes to, to Pharaoh. At the, Jacob is given this sort of almost state-like funeral. There's 40 days of mourning across the land. Uh, he's honoured because of Joseph's status. He, he's honoured 
uh, in the, he, the way that he's treated. Uh, and Joseph and all this uh, crowd, they, they go and they take Jacob to the tomb and they lay him there. Uh, and then they return. And it's at this point, uh, this is sort of verse 15 onwards, that, that fear starts to set in. Uh, the brothers are, are almost, that they're sort of racked with guilt. You can almost imagine what they're thinking in their heads. They're sort of like, well, we sold this guy to slavery. And now kind of the dad, maybe the dad was the one why Jesus didn't do anything. And we sold him to slavery. Now dad's gone. He's just going to do what he wants of us. I mean, they've got absolutely no reason to think that whatsoever, have they? If you've been with us through the story. I mean, if, if Joseph wanted to do something, when they first came to him, he could have just had them done away like that. No questions, no one would care. There's no point that makes us think that Joseph has any ill intention to them. But the brothers, for some reason, think that. And so, perhaps, perhaps slightly unsurprisingly, it seems that they come up with a slight, a slight lie. Verse 16. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. And we're sort of thinking, did he really? We don't know for sure. It's pretty unlikely though. He's almost saying, look, oh, this is what dad said. But at the same time, even though they kind of, they, they preface it with a, perhaps a slight mistruth, this is the first time they actually acknowledge their guilt. They say that what we have done is wrong before you. We have sinned. And then we get this repeat of, uh, of chapter uh, 45. The bit when they reveal them, when Joseph reveals himself for the first time. Um, do you remember they go and lie down before him as Joseph is there, the, the, the ruler? Uh, they prostrate themselves and here they're saying that we're your slaves that Joseph weeps then and he weeps again. And again in chapter 45, he says, look, don't worry. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And we get that exactly again. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So that, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And so finally, the story can move forward. And then we get the last bit of Joseph, verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. We have no idea how many brothers are left. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and you must carry my bones up from this place. Just like his fathers before him, Joseph had that same belief, that same trust. He, he knows that uh, Egypt is not home. 
Yes, that's where they're residing now, but Egypt is not home. Uh, So he says, when you go, when God takes you out of this land, to the land he has promised you, take my bones with me, with, with you. And then Joseph, verse 26, died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Again, not traditional Israelites' customs, but Egyptian. And at this point, we're sort of left thinking, well, what's next? What's next? And that's when we turn the page of our Bible and we get to Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each of his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Uh, The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Uh, Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Yet they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous, the land was filled with them. But then a king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. It's almost you can hear the kind of the dun dun dun. It's the dramatic change in the story. Suddenly, this family that were a great blessing because of God's man in the right place, well, suddenly there's a king now who has no idea who Joseph is. And you wonder if actually this story is now going to take a turn. What's going to happen next? Well, a little spoiler alert, uh, Exodus 13, uh, Joseph's bones are taken out of the land. Uh, but also, if you want to find out what happens next, uh, come along uh, on Sunday, 23rd of April, 10 o'clock, uh, where we start our, our series in Exodus, keeping this story uh, going. But for this evening, we're just going to uh, zoom in a little bit uh, on this one verse, verse 20, chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph speaking says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. It's really a bit of a a summary verse, we might say, uh, for the whole of the the Joseph story. Uh, This sort of uh, actions that have been happening. There's been this story that's been going on, the the actions of some against the actions of others. But behind it all, uh, we've seen that the hand of the Lord. Uh, We might say that there are uh, sort of two uh, agents at work. Now, by agents, I don't mean sort of MI5, uh, but rather uh, uh, sort of two uh, sort of individuals or, or two sort of uh, powers, if that's the right one. Uh, the first is, is that there's been the actions of the people in the story. Uh, there's been the decisions that have been made. So we could go to Jacob, the decision that he made to have a favorite child. We could go to Joseph and the 
that the way that he was a, a bit arrogant and a bit annoying at the start. Uh, then we have that the brothers deciding amongst themselves to sell Joseph into slavery, to profit from his downfall, from his death, effectively. We have the, the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house and, and him learning, being educated there, no doubt. And then the, the, the story of, of Potiphar's wife choosing to, to make an advance on Joseph and Joseph choosing to reject that. We have the, the action of the cupbearer who forgot Joseph. And then we have the action of the cupbearer remembering Joseph. Uh, the action of Pharaoh uh, appointing Joseph to be uh, prime minister. Uh, we have Joseph who presumably was making all sorts of decisions in Egypt, uh, governing uh, wisely. Uh, we have the brothers hearing there is grain in Egypt, choosing to go to Egypt to find food. And so on and so on. We have the story of individuals making decisions for which they are responsible, for good or for ill. Whilst at the same time, we also have the hand of the Lord behind it. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying, therefore, that the the brothers were justified in selling Joseph, as if that they said, well, the Lord sort of commanded us to do that, so so we know know it might have been bad, but actually, because the Lord said it, that was a good thing to do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, that at the same time, The brothers, in that instance, had the free choice to what they were doing. They intended to harm. That was their intention. But actually, through that, the Lord, in his sovereignty, is able to use it for his good. The Lord was able to use that so Joseph would both end up in Egypt which would be the result of uh, him saving many lives. But actually through that experience as well of being put into slavery, being in prison, the Lord used that to form and shape Joseph so that he would be the right man in the right place at the right time. It is this, uh, this what we call double agency, this human responsibility people making decisions and experiencing the decisions of other people, but also God's divine plan. And of course, the, uh, this story just keeps on going, isn't it? I said, this is the, the chapter, this is a chapter, but it's also kind of a figuratively a chapter in God's story. That there are a whole host more chapters where we see this exact same thing working itself out. We see that, uh, that here, that Joseph, the actions of Joseph meant that he saved his family as well as a, a whole host of other families. Uh, that family, the 12 brothers, were the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes, Judah, uh, one of his sons would become King David. Uh, one of King David's greatest sons was the Lord Jesus. 
You see, there's all these little pieces, all of these actions and interactions, but the Lord stands behind it. So what does it really mean then? What does it really mean for us today? Well, it means that that we are free to act. The Lord calls us to follow him, proactively to choose him. Uh, It means that we also face the consequences of other people's choices. Uh, somebody once said that we experience the world as a, uh, almost at the same time as a, as a saint, somebody uh, choosing to follow God, uh, as a sinner, somebody who makes mistakes, and as a sufferer, somebody experiencing the mistakes of others. And all three of those can exist at the same, point, uh, same moment. Uh, but that being true, we also experience the world knowing that the Lord is able to work all things for the good. Romans 8:28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we might say uh, and call that God's providence. Uh, God's providence, uh, we could say also, is, is two things. It's personal. It's to say that God intended. Uh, it's personal and it's purposeful. God intended for the good. God intended for good. It is personal. That is to say that God is not like the force in Star Wars. He's not some sort of random force that sort of exists. God's a person. More than that, he's a person that knows you. He knows what your life is like. He knows how you're feeling. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you have faced, what you have been through. He knows what you are going through, and he knows what you will go through. He doesn't just dip into your life at key moments. God is personal. He is involved intimately in all of our lives. But he's also uh, purposeful. Uh, God is able to work for our good in all of those situations. Uh, again, p- please don't mishear me. That doesn't justify actions that, that we've taken or, or, or actions that others have taken against us that may have been wrong. Those actions are still wrong. But it, it does say that, that through those situations, Good or ill, God is able to turn it to a greater good. It it might take a long time. Joseph, it was decades. Decades from the time that he was sold to slavery till eventually he saw his brothers. It was decades. This can take a long time. We we can't always know a, a time frame. Now, even we might look back at events like, uh, like COVID and say, oh, I think the Lord was teaching me through this. He might have been. 
There might be one thing you can pick up, but, but there could also be uh, hundreds of things that the Lord is doing that you aren't aware of and may not be aware of for decades, maybe not even aware of until you see him. It, it can take time. But it also means because uh, God's providence is, uh, is personal and purposeful, it, it means that we, we don't have to be paralyzed we don't have to think, oh, if I, if I make this, this bad choice, then, then, then God's not going to work good in my life. I'm going to miss out on something. There's that sense of actually, if we're seeking the Lord, then you've got a freedom. Because God is able to work good in all situations. God's providence is personal and purposeful. But it, it might be that you're, you're sitting here thinking, but... I don't know if I know about it. I'm just not quite sure about that, Ben. I don't know if I, I like it, or I don't know if it's, if it's right. Well, just uh, think of these two things first. Um, the first is imagine that if this isn't true, if it's not true at all, that actually that God isn't able to work in situations, then what, what that means is that particularly as you look back upon your life, there's no redeeming point of your past. There's nothing. If, if bad things happen, sad things happen, and the Lord is not able to work for the good, then there's no redeeming point of it. Sure, that there'll be good points and there'll be bad points. You'll be lucky or unlucky. And as you look ahead into the future, you, I guess you're left feeling a bit uncertain. If this idea that the Lord isn't able to work good, then it's not a happier vision at all. It's actually a much more scary and sad one. But secondly, let's uh, come back to this question. Who are we talking about? Who is this person? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who is this person? Well, just a few verses later, Romans 8, 31 to 32. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The person that we're talking about, the person who is able and is able to, to sit above it, to, to work for our good, is the one who has given us his son. So if you ever doubt that God will work for your good, remember, he gave us his son. He gave us Jesus. You see, we sit in a far more privileged situation than Joseph ever did. He sits at the end of chapter one, if you will. Whereas we, uh, we see all of the other chapters of God's story. Uh, we see uh, how the people went into Egypt, uh, all that happened in Exodus and Egypt, all that happened afterwards, all the, the way we had the kings, the prophets. And then we see the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus come, 
We see that, that his victory is total. And so, yes, there are a few chapters yet to be written. But we know the ending. We know the ending. So even though there may be some uncertainty, and there can be uncertainty, there will be questions of why is this happening? Why did this happen? Why is this happening? And sometimes we have to say, I don't know. But I know the one who does. It may be that we even say, Lord, this is not what I planned. (laughs) But I know the one who can work for my goods. And not just a, a good in a little way, but a good that will bring me home into his kingdom. A good that will bring me true hope and joy. I know the one who works for my good. So even though there may be uncertainties, there, there may be wonderings about uh, what the, the future holds, what university to go to, what job to have, uh, what retirement looks like, what my children will do, I know the one who is able. So whatever I face, good, bad, or plain ugly, he is able and will work for my good. As I close, uh, I'm just going to read a poem. It's a poem made famous uh, by Corrie ten Boom, uh, although the author is unknown. It's called The Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride... Forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Uh, Not till the loom is silent uh, and the shuttles cease to fly uh, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand uh, as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern. He has planned. He knows. He loves. He cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are in your hands. Lord, that can feel scary, but there are no better hands to be in. We thank you that even though our tomorrow may be unknown, it is not unknown to you, and that we have every confidence, every surety that you are working for the good of those that love you. And we know that because you did not spare your only son. Father, would you build up in us that confidence, we pray, this day and always. Amen.